one, two, five, nine. Father, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? So listeners, this past week was jurisdictional conferences across the jurisdictions in North America, at least in the United States, which is where the jurisdictional delegates gather to elect bishops and pass resolutions and in general manage this particular regional level of the church. Usually it happens right after general conference because things are uh, approved and voted on at general conference that affect jurisdictional conference. But since we haven't had a general conference, and since the next general conference is going to be in 2024 in Charlotte, jurisdictional conferences were like, we got to deal with the bishops. Let's just meet. And so that happened this week. Ian went to the Northeastern Jurisdiction Conference as a delegate. Caleb, for people who listened to Pioneering Durham, was at the Southeastern Jurisdiction as a delegate, and I followed some of what he was doing there. Jeremy Smith, also from Pioneering Durham and Methodist Fane, was at the Western Jurisdiction Jurisdictional <laughs> Gathering. And so there was a lot happening. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of news. There's a lot of stuff to follow. And Ethan, I think that you probably follow the Northeastern jurisdiction the most. Yeah, that's that's where I'm from. And so my my home conference had a delegation there. And uh, that's but but I've been like I was getting updates from you and, you know, on social media and some other folks that I follow. So I know all about all about I shouldn't say that I know of some of the bishops that have been elected in different parts of the country. So, yeah, it's I. It is a weird, this was a weird jurisdictional conference. I want to say I went into it thinking I don't really need to pay all that much attention to it because the whole, the whole thing was that we pushed to elect delegates in the United States that were more, if, if not liberal, left-leaning centrists, right? That was the whole goal was to kind of make sure that conservatives didn't have a majority in places so that we could elect these more liberal left-leaning bishops and like at least change how like the u.s functions on that level and so i went into it being like well i don't know why we're all so concerned and and why there needs to be the strategizing because didn't we elect all of the liberal delegates that we needed and we did Mm -hmm. but i what i what i really found is that there's a lot of obstructionist stuff happening in the southeastern jurisdiction which Caleb wants to come back on and talk about how racism really played into stuff and yet the the conservatives were writing in candidates which i'm not i'm not here to bash writing in candidates because that was an important strategy in the northeast jurisdiction but the the southeastern jurisdiction you had people writing in candidates just to like split votes and not have enough and like make you go through ballots and ballots and ballots which wasted time and meant that the resolutions that they were trying to get through which were i believe the two biggest resolutions were if you're leaving to go to the global methodist church you shouldn't have a position of leadership in the umc and then if uh, then the other one was, I think, affirming like the value of LGBTQ people in some way, shape or form. I don't remember the, the text of that resolution, mm. but it's once again, just trying to get us to be humans toward LGBTQ people for once in this denomination. And so those resolutions in the SEJ were voted out of order and they needed to have a whole big discussion about it. And this wasn't happening because so much time was spent balloting because we had conservatives doing these kind of stalling tactics by writing in people instead of having an honest vote. 
Hmm. So, uh, yeah, there was just a lot more politicking than I expected because I kind of expected us to have majorities that would let us be able to vote the way we wanted to vote. And um, it was a lot more tense. There was a lot more that happened than I anticipated because I don't think that I had ever watched a jurisdictional conference before. I don't know if they were live streamed them before. Right. But I, yeah, I was flipping between live streams of other ones. I was following along on on Twitter and in Facebook chats and in, in group chats everywhere. We would go from these really high highs of like, we've elected uh, the first Latinx bishop in the Northeast jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And we're very excited about him. And he's going to be placed in Upper New York and like good things are happening. And there was another LGBTQ bishop elected in the Western jurisdiction. And there was a black woman elected in the Southeast jurisdiction from South Carolina. And like there were women elected all over the place. Like there, there were good things happening. But then you also had all the rest of like the regular racism that happens. You have the tokenization that happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first person elected on ballot in the SEJ was Tom Berlin, and he could not be more of a centrist show. <laughs> like, yeah, my understanding of Tom Berlin is that Tom Berlin, kind of like Adam Hamilton at the 2019 General Conference, suddenly woke up from his nap on the floor right. when, when he realized, oh, the centrist position is going to lose. Right. Like, what are you doing? But then again, my mom really likes Tom Berlin. My mom's not a centrist, but my mom also is so, the bar is so low in United Methodism for my mom that like Tom Berlin is basically like the Pope. Right. You know, and he has, he has an affirming church. Like he's, he's on the Wesley board of directors. He's not a terrible person. He's just not the hero of progressivism that we would like, you know? Right. (laughs) It's difficult. There are so many people that it's difficult to be excited about electing. And like the first rule is do no harm, but I need I need people to understand that centrism is actually doing harm in the case when oppression is happening. And we just seem to not be able to understand that very basic principle of justice work. Right. Right. I think that you know, centrism is so wild to me because it's one of those positions that I, I have to look at as sort of a fairy tale position hmm. to be in, particularly when you start to like, you know, when you start to really dig into like the raw data of the world, right? Like when you dig into just, just not only just experiences of people that are unlike you, but like when you just start to read, when you start to read, you know, humanities literature studies, you know, sociological studies, like, just just the moment you become aware, centrism yeah. should be obviously wrong. Like, I think that the conservative traditional position is is completely bananas and evil and totally wrong. But like, I can understand how one arrives at those conclusions, depending on the sorts of data that they, you know, imbibe, right? Like, yeah. like if, if you come at it with a particular set of prior assumptions, like America is a chosen nation, you know, God needs the church to, you know, create a theocracy, whatever. 
and and you arrive at like the data like oh there's all these children children there's all these young people who are identifying as queer this is this is a travesty this is bad this is the fault the end of civilization like i can understand taking that like piece of data and putting it through the conservative filter and coming to the conclusions that they come to right like like as even as bananas as I find it and wrong as I find it, I get it. To mm-hmm. be a centrist, you, you essentially just have to live in a totally different world without any information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You have to talk to nobody. You have to think about nothing. You have to read nothing. And you just have to assume, like my new infant, that the entire world is also just you. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I just I find it I find it bonkers. I find it bananas. It's it's the it's the same piece of weird logic that says in order to protect ourselves, we have to have a split government that does nothing. Yeah, yeah, I I feel like we are all caught up in this myth of the 1950s where it didn't really matter if you were a Republican or Democrat because we all respected each other and we all worked together for infrastructure or something like where, where white people could pretend that partisanship didn't, didn't matter because we're all kind of on the same team here. And and like that seems to be the ideal of centrism that like we can all just get along and and i miss the security of thinking that the middle was really the way to go i i think there's a way to listen to other people with with different views from you that helps you learn and helps you grow uh, while also staying true to your own convictions i think that's totally possible and actually the mature way to handle things mm-hmm. and i think centrist think that that's what they're doing when actually they're just refusing to have a position on anything and calling out for peace when peace is not possible because injustice still exists. Like it's, yeah, it's just a very privileged position. And I find it being expressed by people who they like, they don't understand the concept of intersectionality. Right. Well, if I can put like a more slightly more theological term on it, you're right. hundred percent agree on the intersectionality thing. They don't understand the concept of solidarity. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you don't have to understand nuanced critical theory about intersectionality to understand that we're all in this together. Right. Right. Like, like that, that's okay. I mean, my grandma doesn't know jack about intersectionality. But nevertheless, she understands that if something bad happens to a person of another race, that is bad. <laughs> right. And right. it shouldn't happen. You know what I mean? Like, like, it's not that complicated for her. Not that she's, you know, not that she's this Marxist, but like, that's not my, that's not the point. Like, she, people understand how solidarity, some people understand how solidarity works. And I think that the the centrist position is always themselves. Mm-hmm. Anybody who thinks, how do I want to put it? Anybody who thinks Treebeard is wise is a centrist. I am on nobody's side because nobody is on my side. That is not a wise position. And in fact, that's the point. Right. The point right. is that the point that Tolkien is making is that Treebeard is wrong. We can understand Treebeard. We know why Treebeard has that position because 
not enough people care about his domain, not enough people are compassionate enough for nature and for the woods and, and, and for what he does and who he is. And so Treebeard withdraws and, and, and sort of says, hey, you know, if nobody's going to care about me, I'm not going to care about them. I'm not going to try to hurt anybody, but I'm also not going to get involved. That pro-me position is precisely what Treebeard has to be shown is wrong Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In order, for, in order for him to do what is good and correct, like, like that's the whole point. The hobbits have to be like, but don't you see? You're a part of this world. We're in this together. What is happening not only will affect you, but even if it didn't affect you, <laughs> even if, even if you, even if it was really true that you could be isolated, it still doesn't matter because we are all beholden to each other, and we have to be able to help one another. This is why somebody from my conference, who is a part of certain marginalized communities, can say there is some continuity between her marginalized community and whenever conservatives feel bad. Right. That's the that's where we need to make an important distinction that I don't know that we are always capable of making, which is what what is real actual harm <laughs> because right. there is actual harm being done to lgbtq people in terms of the incredible mental burden that is put upon us by knowing that the church does not approve of who we are does not value who we are does not want us to be ourselves and in fact wants us to rid ourselves of something that's very fundamental to who we are in order to fit their false ideal of what a true christian is and that's like just within the church sphere not counting like homophobia and queerphobia writ large right that's actual harm that's being done. Like those are actual lives that are being ruined. Like I have a friend who is in a like long-term mental health care facility because of the transphobia that she's experiencing. Like right. it's it's horrifying. It's awful. It's actual harm. And that is very different from somebody setting up a boundary <laughs> with somebody who's a conservative and saying, hey, I love gay people. They are important parts of my life. And I'm not going to continue to be in conversation and relationship with you if you are going to continue harming people that I love. That's my boundary. And that's what I'm setting up. And you can live your whole full life away from me. But like, this is where I have to stand. The the conservative in that scenario is not being harmed in any way. Maybe they're losing out a friendship, but there is still a community available to them. They are still fine. And I don't know. When I was a street medic, we would have conversations like at the beginning of every action, we would be like, okay, now who here is willing to treat the neo-Nazis if something happens to them and who here is not, right? As street medics, we are there to be, uh, to be a force to like help people who are injured, but like say a Nazi gets punched in the face and has a broken nose. Is anybody in the group going to go over and like help them deal with the massive blood that they're going to be spewing everywhere? And I, and we really struggled with it. But also like if somebody punched a Nazi in the face and that Nazi was no longer doing harm to anybody else, I would probably help that Nazi get some help for his face. You know, like I, there, there is a way to have compassion when harm has been done to people who have terrible, terrible ideas without letting them off the hook for their terrible ideas. Absolutely. We don't have that. That seems to be a completely 
foreign concept to a lot of church conversations. Mm-hmm. The idea that I can, with all of my heart, hope for the salvation of people who have harmed me and hope for like real full lives where like God is present with them and they have healthy relationships and and life goes their way. You know, like I can actually have that hope for people who have harmed me and still know that they have to change their ways if they want to be back in relationship with me because they've harmed me. Yeah, you just can't equate somebody saying, I don't want to be in relationship with you with actual harm because it's not what it is. Right, right. You're right. You bringing up, you know, this differentiation between are we prepared to help the Nazi if they if they get punched in the nose and blood spews everywhere? Well, of course, it might not feel good. It's not that it's not a struggle. Like, like, yes, we have to reconcile that. But that is, oh, completely qualitatively different from allowing their ideas to be in power. Yes. Yeah. You know, like, like that's that's the point, right? Like, I think the issue with the centrist position is that they have no way of differentiating that. Yeah, there there is this weird sense in which the proper way of peace is, I don't know, to give everybody a fair shake at controlling everyone's lives. I guess. Yeah. Or the idea that somehow our rules are neutral, that mm. that that every rule is equal and therefore must be followed. And somebody from my conference, that that's her point, right? Her point in many of the speeches she made is that as somebody who's a part of a marginalized community in the United Methodist Church, there are rules in place to protect her, and that is absolutely correct. That was a center point of your, you and I, discuss, you and my discussion of in pioneering Durham, mm, right? Mm-hmm. There are there are structures and rules in place that if we do not follow, vulnerable people will be hurt, and so it's important to follow them. Agreed. The problem is that then this particular person and the centrist position, I think in general, has no way of, of determining the value of individual rules and whether or not they can impact, you know, whether or not they have impact outside of their rules. Right. Exactly. Like, like, like this is, th- and this is why I have to say this position can only exist if there is no reading, no, no interest, no exploration of other experiences and and the entire centrist centrist position just revolves around the centrist right like that's the only way it can be possible because we already know that there are rules in our government and in our church that that part of their impact is the marginalization of other kinds of people and so to say there are rules in place that if everybody broke people like me would get hurt. This is why we have to enforce rules banning gay people from doing X, Y, Z thing, because otherwise the, the point doesn't follow the, the idea that the set, the centrist has the ability to emphasize, empathize and put themselves in the shoes of the conservative, but never the progressive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Never the progressive. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why. 
I think it's because, well, I know in the case of this particular person who just simply flat out said the progressives have an agenda as if implying that the conservatives don't. Right. That's bonkers. And I'm like, of course, the progressives have an agenda. And thank God they do. Exactly. (laughs) And thank God their agenda is to bring in as many visionary leaders into Mm -hmm. the United Methodist Church as possible to lead the United Methodist Church into a place where hopefully God will not dismantle it board by board. Right. That's the progressive idea. Maybe, maybe the centrists are self-aware enough without realizing that there is no room for them in that kind of church. Yeah. William Stringfellow said, I'm sorry, I'm reading The Simplicity of Faith right now, or, or I taught on The Simplicity of Faith, which is William Stringfellow's book that he wrote after his 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 partner, Anthony Town, uh, died. Uh, and it's a gut-wrenching book. It's it's just, it's, I tweeted about it. Like every time I read it, I'm like, this is, this is just like a stunning achievement, you know, from Stringfellow. It's, it's beautiful. But, you know, throughout the book, when he's not talking about Anthony, he, Anthony Town, his partner, he's, he's sort of riffing on many of the things he likes to riff on. And he just, he's an Episcopalian. And, and he says, um, he said at one point, He's like, for the last 10 years, the Episcopal Church has been moving towards electing leaders who are managers instead of visionaries. Mm. Um, and, and he's like, and this is why the Episcopal Church will fall, because uh, we actually don't need managers, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you just flat out said it, right? Like, a centrist is a manager. They're about status quo. They're about running business as usual. And the only way you can imagine that business as usual and the status quo is good is if it's good for you. Yeah. If it doesn't cause you any any disruption or upset. I mean, we talked about this, I think, in our very first episode of the podcast. We talked about whether what, what our jobs were as pastors and is it just to be maintenance people? Is it just to like keep the lights on in the church? Right. And we, I think we both kind of rejected that. And then I think over time, I don't know, I as a person have really come to understand the importance of being able to go into maintenance mode (laughs) when, when the world requires it, because I think the world does require it from time to time. But we also need to acknowledge that like, you do not grow in maintenance mode. You do not grow when there are managers and not that everything has to be, we don't have to be in search of this perpetual growth because that's just a myth, but there is a vitality that has to happen that doesn't necessarily happen when you're just maintaining the status quo, especially when the status quo is unjust. Maybe right. maybe exclusively when the status quo is unjust, but especially when the status quo is unjust. Yeah, I think people on the left came to jurisdictional conference with an agenda, just the same way that conservatives have come to everything with an agenda. And that agenda was to fracture the United Methodist Church, start their own denomination, and get as much money as they could on their way out the door. Like, of course, we are going to now have a response to that to the best of our ability. And that's not evil. You know, I think back to when I was serving in the local church, and when the protocol came out, and there was such relief upon like first glance at the protocol because, oh, thank God there's a resolution, you know, like this is, there's a plan, there's a way forward. (laughs) Like we will have to have some difficult conversations, but like, at least we know what's laid out in front of us. And that, and, 
and the protocol is only okay if you are a centrist, if you are not going to really lose anything, and if you don't care about the fact that the global Methodist church is going to hurt gay kids. You know, like if your priority is not the well-being of all people, then the protocol is fine. And and I think that the reason that the protocol is so appealing is that it does not force anybody to have any real introspection and any real repentance and any real change. Like mm-hmm. it allows us to set our hearts to stay hardened to the work of the spirit. And the work of the spirit is actually calling us to full inclusion of people. The work of the spirit is calling us to rid ourselves of homophobia, of transphobia, of every type of queer phobia. The work of the spirit is calling us to rid ourselves of racism and white supremacy. The work of the spirit is calling us to rid ourselves of complacency because all of these things are stopping the kingdom from coming in this world. You know, all of these things are stopping us from being the people that God designed us to be. And it is a terrible struggle to fight through these things and to remove ourselves from the colonial mindset that we have and the Eurocentric mindset that we have and all of the ways in which our imagination has been frozen and shrunken and and debilitated by the world that we grew up in. But like, that's the work of the spirit to re-enliven us and to rid us of the things that are holding us back from God. And that can be really painful work. And I don't, I, I actually want to emphasize that. There is a real fear that happens here because it's going to cost us something. Ridding ourselves of white supremacy costs us something. As white people, it puts us into really awkward conversations. It means that we have to look at interactions that we've had and feel actual regret and pain and know that we have benefited from a system that we had no control over, but but it's still us, you know? It, for those of us who are citizens of the United States, it's still our country that dropped nuclear weapons. It's still our country that has fostered coups around the world. It's still our country that enslaved people. You know, we, we have this heritage that is painful to look at and painful to think about and wrecks us when we look at it. But we have to. That is, that is the work that the spirit calls us to. And we don't want to do that. I, and I, I fully understand the resistance to it. And if you hadn't had, haven't had any preparation to it, if your mind hasn't been open to the fact that like that work has to happen, if your heart hasn't been open to the fact that that work has to happen, then centrism feels like a great position to be in because I don't have to do any of that type of work. But that's that's the key work. That's the central work. That's the work that helps us build a more just and equitable world. And we have to do it. And that's the work of, of rewriting the discipline. So the discipline does not have these unjust rules in it so that we can uphold the whole discipline. But also part of the call of an elder is to order the church, which means helping to edit the discipline to make it more just over time. <laughs> like mm-hmm. there's, there's no reason to be caught by the discipline. And to said, we have to uphold all of the parts. If we're going to uphold one part, we can understand that this is a living document that is made by fallible people. And, and we need to go through. It's just very frustrating to me that it doesn't take a lot of work to have this nuanced understanding, not even really nuanced to have this understanding of the church, to know that God will call us to go through difficult things because we grew up in a world that is not necessarily of God. And that stuff has to come out of us. We believe, 
believe in forgiveness. We believe in, in repentance. We believe in reconciliation. We believe in restoration. We believe in all of these things. We have mechanisms for all of these things. And centrists seem to be really deeply afraid of being called to account. And I just need them to stop. Like, just acknowledge that you are going to have a crappy time moving forward <laughs> because you have to go through this hard work, but you'll be a better person on the other side of it. And more importantly, the community will be better on the other side of it. And maybe we have a chance of actually being God's people instead of whatever we are right now. Everything you said is correct. Thanks. The only thing I would add <laughs> to it is to say, these are things, what you're saying and, and the attitudes that we have over this kind of stuff is um, anathema to how centrists believe they are, we are supposed to be. Yeah. How do I want to put it? Whenever conservative Christian people make like a general critique of, say, liberal Christianity, they're really talking about centrists because they don't have the first clue about what progressive left-wing Christianity is like. Right. You know, like, like the underplaying of sin, you know, is one that we see a lot. Conservative Christians claim that liberal Christians don't care about sin. Well, I don't know who they're talking. Well, I do know who they're talking about, but they're not talking about us. Right. <laughs> you know, sin, left-wing Christians are firmly aware of sin. In fact, we know it pretty well. We know what's going on. We know that sin has infected every aspect of human culture. The only people who don't seem to know that are centrists, who who really have a hard time believing that anybody could believe anything strongly. Hmm. Strongly enough that they're not willing to shake hands over it. You know, isn't that like, I think at the end of the day, isn't that the piece that confuses you know, us the most about centrists, there is this, there's this drive, there's this, I don't know, this, uh, I'll just say drive with, so I don't say something meaner. There is this drive <laughs> within, within this way of seeing the world that says we are doing the right thing. If nobody is mad and if, and if everybody is shaking hands and coming together and paying their apportionments, and and singing, you know, four thousand tongues to sing at annual conference, and um, then going home and putting on just the absolute best children's ministry they can come up with. Like, because I think back to the way in which she leans so heavily on the Holy Spirit. We know what the progressives are doing is wrong because we know that the Holy Spirit doesn't bring dissension anywhere. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, not even Wesley thought this was correct, but fine. Th this is, I think, what is very frustrating to me is that the ire, you know, of conservatives when they imagine a liberal Christian is really on the centrist. This lukewarm person who can't imagine caring about a thing so much that they're willing to lose something over it. Right. Isn't that what it is at the end of the day? Isn't that what it is? Like, we can't imagine, a centrist can't imagine caring about gay people so much that they'd be willing to let go of a conservative person over it. 
Yeah, that they'd be willing to lose a friend over it. Yeah, yeah like, like I just, I, and and this is also why I think centrists are so um, baffled when they encounter somebody like Ian, who who says, "No, don't you get it? Don't you understand? You are actively doing harm." No, I can't be. I'm a centrist. No, you you are. You're actively doing harm. Or or when they encounter somebody like Nick, who at his you know when when he's at his his most ornery, will will just rain curses down on people, right? Like like pull a full Jeremiah and and say, mm-hmm. God strike them down. You know, in your anger, judge them. Because what they are doing is worthy enough to go to be in perdition for all time. And then a centrist goes, how can this be? And I'm like, well, guys, first of all, you have to care. You have to care. You have to care about something other than yourself. And um, until a centrist can show that to me, I'm, I'm just going to assume that the only thing they care about is themselves, their happiness, their pleasure, their place in, in, in the hierarchy and everything else just has to be dealt with. What are we supposed to do with that, Joe? How are we supposed to be in a Christian community with people like that? You know, how are we supposed to do holy conferencing with people like that? I can do holy conferencing with a traditionalist because at least they care. Like, at least then, yes, they'll, they'll play every political machination in the book, but so will we. And we'll scream and bitch and moan and do whatever. But a centrist, man, they're the kingmakers. And they routinely side with conservatives. <laughs> Why? Yeah. How is that possible? How is it possible that they're that, 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 that they've come to that conclusion? Well, because we're already a conservative denomination, right? But and we're so- not. We're in, we're in a historically liberal denomination, it doesn't feel that way from the church that I grew up in. But we are. We've we, our denomin- The Methodist church in this country has historically been on the cutting edge of every liberal thing you can think of. Like, at least in terms of our history, we've, we've historic, you know, there's been, of course, issues with that. For example, we all liked eugenics, but at the time, eugenics was a liberal uh, idea. <laughs> You know, what a complicated thing. Yeah, that is complicated. But but we but we have like the Methodist social creed w- was in favor of unionization and labor laws. We wanted to create uh, situations of of living wages for everybody. That's why I say um, if anybody attempted to apply our our social principles to being a clergy person in the Methodist Church, we would have no choice but to demand that the United Methodist Church be shut down. Right. You know, like, like it's always been that way. We've been taken over, but this is the main reason why conservatives want to start their own denomination. It's because the structures of our denomination do not allow them to do what they want to do because we are an historically liberal denomination. And so I, I, I get very confused when a centrist attempts to have because I've had it before. It's not like I have, there are centrists are everywhere in my home conference. When, when a centrist attempts to explain to me their position, I sit there and I go, but I still don't get it. What can possibly be more important 
than spreading the gospel and caring for people made in the image of God who are on the margins. What could possibly be more important than proclaiming the lordship of Jesus Christ over the power of racism? What could possibly be more important than being filled with the Spirit and having love shed abroad in your hearts for those that society says are unlovely? But Ethan, if I do that, I'll be made uncomfortable. Right. That's what's more important. You. <laughs> yeah. 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 Of course. <laughs> of oh. course. My bad. Oh, God. I, yeah. Yeah. I, again, I want to be generous to people who are, are staring down over the precipice of, you know, deciding to actually fight for justice. Because, because again, there is a real cost. It will cost you relationships. It will cost you friendships. It will cost you some community. But like, is, is this not what the gospel has always prepared us for? You know, it was so hard in in my churches when i was trying to preach about racism and it was falling on ears that thought they already knew what they needed to know it was so hard when i was trying to do the work that i thought that really needed to get done in the community and know that like if i wanted to stay secure in my position i needed to really downplay it and i needed to go have like these really hard conversations with people who had very different ideas for me and did not want to budge on them. And that, that cost something. And that was exhausting and it was terrible for my mental health. And, and I want to own that really the struggle to transform the church is a struggle. And so I understand the, like one of the questions she kept on asking in her speeches was like, what am I going to tell my churches if we elect an LGBTQ bishop? There is a real concern for how do I have this conversation? This is going to prompt a difficult thing for me to do. And I don't, I don't want to downplay that having conversations about LGBTQ inclusion in small, in not small churches in churches that are not ready for it is difficult. And Mm -hmm. having conversations about racism is difficult. I mean, we have a lot of colleagues from seminary who are in settings that you can't talk about anything really on an intellectual level. You really have to get them to the place of solidarity with people who are underprivileged in similar ways that they are, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just a different approach to it. And, and it's difficult and it requires work and it requires research and it requires patience and it requires showing back up again and again. Like it's, it's real work. It's not easy, but it is uh, like the yoke that Jesus is sharing with us. And in that way, the burden is light, right? Like this is, sure, it's our cross to bear, but it is also what we are being called to. And in that way, we will get rest. Even though we are heavy laden with this, Jesus is with us. God is with us. This is the work to do. And so like, I'm sorry you're afraid of it, but why on earth should you be allowed to stand in the way of the work that God is doing just because you weren't ready and didn't do your research? Yep. That's right. So friends, don't be a centrist. Don't let your friends be a centrist either. <laughs> yeah. It's bad and and it does it does bad things. <gasps> Ethan, can you sign us off? Yeah, let's be done. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been a mini sode of what the hell's a bastard. We are Spanks Reebok and the Dude, and we will see you next time.
What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schomwolf, performed by Joe Schomwolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Email us at whatthehellisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WTHIAP, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you can get access to Pillow Talk, merch, and some other stuff. Thanks for listening. And remember, friends, Ethan gave me all the money in his wallet.